Chapter 13 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Vini Vidi Vici. The campaign, or rather series of campaigns, which for the next nine years were to engage Miss Dix promised to call for all her resources. They involved nothing less than carrying the legislatures of Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Maryland, besides the establishment of two entirely new asylums in the British provinces, the one at Halifax, Nova Scotia, the other at St. John, Newfoundland. Fortunately, there have been preserved letters of various dates during those nine years which will help to illustrate the spirit and success of her undertakings. Nothing, it is said, tends to develop so swiftly in reluctant minds a sense of personal responsibility as boldly and suddenly thrusting responsibility on them. Certainly, of this kind of tactics, a striking instance is given in the ensuing letter of Miss Dix to Mrs. Hare of Philadelphia. Quote, Raleigh, North Carolina, November 27th, 1848. They say nothing can be done here. I reply, I know no such word in the vocabulary I adopt. It is declared that no word will be uttered in opposition to my claims, but that the Democrats, having banded as a party to vote for nothing that involves expense, will unite and silently vote down the bill. A motion was made to order lighting the lamps in the portico of the Capitol and voted down by the Democrats. Ye love darkness because your deeds are evil, said a Whig in great ire. And a voice from the gallery responded piously, For ye are of your father the devil. This morning after breakfast, several gentlemen called, all Whigs, talked of the hospital, and said the most discouraging things possible. I sent for the leading Democrats, went to my room, and brought my memorial, written under the exhaustion of ten weeks' most fatiguing journeys and labors. Gentlemen, I said, here is the document I have prepared for your assembly. I desire you, sir, to present it handing it to a Democrat popular with his party. And you, gentlemen, I said, turning to the astonished delegation, you, I expect, will sustain the motion this gentleman will make to print the same. They took leave, I do sincerely think, fully believing in a failure. But I thought I could not have canvassed the state for nothing. So the result proved. The memorial was presented. The motion to print twelve extra copies for each member was offered and passed without one dissenting vote. These steps are, then, 
safely and successfully made. The deep waters are yet to pass, but my heart is fixed and fixed my eye, and I am girded for the race. The Lord is strong, and I rely on his assisting grace. End quote. Deep waters were there always to pass before Bill's, demanding such large appropriations, present and prospective, could be carried triumphantly through. To persuade a party so bent on illustrating its tender sympathy with its constituents' hatred of tax bills as to forbid so much as lighting the lamps in the portico of the state capitol, to persuade such a party of the wisdom and mercy of the act of lighting and feeding forever after with costly oil, a lamp of sacrifice which has ever since burned with such beneficent ray as the Raleigh Insane Asylum, was no task to be accomplished without a world of anxiety and toil. Towards this great feat, she was effectively helped by the eloquent plea of Honorable James C. Dobbin, made, as has already been stated, in response to the entreaty of his dying wife that he would champion the cause of the woman who had so tenderly cared for her. By the close, therefore, of December 1848, Miss Dix could enthusiastically write to her friend Mrs. Hare, quote, Rejoice, rejoice with me. Through toil, anxiety, and tribulation, my bill has passed. One hundred and one eyes, ten nays. I am not well, though perfectly happy. I leave North Carolina compensated a thousandfold for all labors by this great success. End quote. The following autumn and winter of 1849 found Miss Dix in Montgomery, Alabama, arduously engaged in trying to carry the state legislature. There, after a beginning made under the most favorable auspices, a series of delays and disappointments set in, finally brought to a climax by the conflagration of the state capitol. A panic in favor of retrenchment at once ensued, and the year's work seemed lost. Sadly, but courageously, she was forced to write to her friend Miss Heath, quote, My affairs were in full tide of prosperous action when the disastrous conflagration of the state capital threw everything into indescribable confusion. I have determined, as an adjournment is had till New Year, to save time by going at once to fulfill some objects at Selma, Mobile, New Orleans, and Jackson, Mississippi. I have recollected amidst these perplexities that God requires no more to be accomplished than he gives time for performing, and I turn now more quietly to my work up the hill difficulty. The summit is cloud-capped, but I have passed amidst dark and rough ways before, and shall not now give out. By the opening of the new session, however, January 1st, 1850, 
she was back again at her post in Montgomery. Once again was the hill difficulty to prove insurmountable. The state was in no mood for increased appropriations, and though stanch friends stood by her, the conflagration had given an impulse to the cry for retrenchment which even her energy could not make head against. In a weary hour she wrote her friend Mrs. Hare, quote, I think, after this year, I shall certainly not suffer myself to engage in any legislative affairs for a year. I can conceive the state of mind which this induces to be like nothing save the influences of the gambling table, or any games of chance, on such unlooked-for and often trivial balances do the issues depend. There is just one chance in a hundred that my bill will pass. And yet, spite of her feeling of disappointment, Miss Dix's faithful and untiring work had really carried the day in Alabama. Not during the session of 1850 was her bill to triumph, but in that of 1851-52 to 52, it went successfully through. Touched with her devotion, the Alabama State Medical Association now came to the rescue appointing a special committee to follow up the strong impressions already made, and placing at the head of this committee Dr. Lopez, a man after her own heart, who labored with such earnestness through the ensuing session that an appropriation of $100,000 was finally secured, and after this was exhausted, one of $150,000 more. Scarcely a month, however, after the weary and baffled letter in which Miss Dix had compared the anxieties and vicissitudes of legislative affairs with the influences of the gambling table, there came a happy turn in the wheel of fortune through the course of events in the neighboring state of Mississippi, which called out the following rejoicing letter to Miss Heath, quote, Twenty-four majority in the Senate and eighty-one in the House was something of a conquest over prejudice and the positive declaration and determination not to give a dime. Therefore, to give fifty thousand dollars and three million brick, besides the farm and foundations of the structure, is no small matter. Great was my surprise at the really beautiful vote of thanks, first by the legislature, then by the commissioners, and finally by the citizens. Legislature, commissioners, and citizens alike insisted on naming the hospital after me. End quote. This last tribute of honor to her name, however, Miss Dix, on this, as on so many other occasions, positively refused. The speaker, in reply, informed her that, in deference to her views, the legislature had agreed to suspend immediate action, but added that that was all Mississippians would concede on this point to one who belonged to the country and was honored by all. The letter, 
written from some unnamed point on the Mississippi, from which the last extract is made, contains likewise a picturesque sketch illustrative of the peculiar exposures to which travelers on riverboats were in those days subjected. Quote, we have on our boat, she says, both cholera and malignant scarlet fever. To add to our various incidents, a quantity of gunpowder was left in charge of a raw Irishman, who was directed at a given time and place to load the cannon and fire a salute. One hundred miles away from the point to be so honored, Pat, thinking the bore of the cannon as good a place of deposit for the powder as he could find, rammed it down. Then, discovering that the rain had wet the bore, he ran with alacrity to the furnace and returned with a burning stick, thrusting it in after the powder to dry up the wather. This it effected, but not this alone, for of course the powder exploded, and certain portions of Pat's arm and hand were sent in advance toward the distant city. Who took care of poor Pat and dressed his wounds, the letter does not say. Ten to one, it was Miss Dix herself. The last thing with truth that could have been urged in her case was the so common reproach brought against philanthropists that, while full of tenderness for humanity in the mass, they are indifferent towards individuals, or, as Dean Swift wittily puts it, that while loving the race, they do not care a haypenny for Tom, Dick, and Harry. Indeed, there exists an amusing letter from her lifelong friend, Dr. William G. Elliot of St. Louis, in which he comments on the unerring instinct with which, on boarding a train or a steamboat, she was sure, by a kind of Freemasonry, to detect any case of illness, poverty, or bereavement, and before long to be found ministering to it. The letter, though written at a later date, and at the time when Dr. Elliot was himself engrossed in completing the endowment of Washington University, St. Louis, that monument to his own persistency and self-sacrifice, certainly lights up the subject in hand by an individual contribution to New Testament interpretation, not to be found in any of the standard commentaries. Quote, I often think, he says, of your thoughtful care of that forlorn woman in the cars. It was a rebuke to me. I can spend or be spent for an institution or for humanity. But if I had seen the certain man between Jerusalem and Jericho, I should have been the priest or Levite. Perhaps they were at work for something on a large scale and could not see the small or perhaps they had no relish for charity and detail. In fact, while on this especial subject, it may be well enough to note here that so numerous were the instances Miss Dix encountered on trains and steamboats, 
not merely of the sufferings, but of the follies and perversities of human beings, that, dignified and reticent as was her habitual demeanor, she at times would speak her mind with a freedom that created a marked sensation. Once, for example, three young ladies, dressed in the extreme of fashion, boarded the train. It was at that especial epoch in the natural history of woman, which may be accurately enough described as the wasp waste period, when in humble imitation of that selected insect, to reduce to the last degree of tenuity the slight film of connection needful for self-preservation between the thoracic and the abdominal regions of the human body seemed to many young maidens the chief end of man. The fashion was one Miss Dix held in peculiar abhorrence, her own studies in physiology having apparently inspired her with an intellectual respect so profound for the functions of hearts, lungs, liver, and digestive organs that she could no more tolerate the thought of their cruel imprisonment in the steel cage of a binding corset than that of the outraged insane in their own cages. Now it so happened that on a seat not far from the part of the car in which the three fashionably dressed young ladies had placed themselves was a fourth young woman whose ideas on the subject of the human waste evidently coincided more nearly with the antiquated and exploded notions of the Venus of Milo. She became at once an object of ridicule to her more advanced sisters, who talked her over with an unrestrained freedom which excited indignation on all sides. "'Better be dead than out of fashion,' finally exclaimed one of the three. Miss Dix could endure their insolence no longer, and suddenly rising, interposed with her rich, impressive voice, My dear, if you lace as tight as you do now, you will not long have the privilege of the choice. You will be both dead and out of fashion. To return, however, from this digression to the series of campaigns Miss Dix was through those nine years engaged with, principally in the southern and middle states of the Union. It had become her habit to work from the late autumn till advancing spring in the south, and when the heat grew too overpowering, to transfer her field of activity to more northern regions as far to the northeast as Halifax, Nova Scotia, and St. John, Newfoundland, do we, accordingly, in these times find her. In Halifax especially is she now, year by year, bending all her energies toward the foundation of a cruelly needed asylum, while zealously seconded in her efforts by the Bishop of Nova Scotia, it was, however, to the untiring courage and devotion of Honorable Hugh Bell that final success was chiefly due. Among the correspondence left behind at the death of mystics, the letters of this humble-minded but, in every fiber, noble man afforded a beautiful picture of a true friendship in the spirit. 
of great practical ability and thoroughly versed in political matters, a tendency nonetheless to despondency was a marked characteristic of the man, and to Miss Dix and the sacred work she had put into his hands, he felt he owed a happier trust in God and faith in human nature. His moral admiration for her was unbounded. Again and again he attests how her inspiration had made life worth living to him through lifting it to a disinterested aim. She, he said, was Minerva, he, Telemachus. As, therefore, one sure test of the vitality of any mind is its power to raise up a host of co-workers, infused with its own faith and will, it is here to the point to present a few extracts from these letters of Honorable Hugh Bell. Only through the medium of such living records can any fit idea be gained alike of the discouragements attendant on such work as Miss Dix was engaged on, in communities as yet insensible to its real import, and of the nature of the happy spiritual relations established between lofty minds made one by a common humane aim. Quote, Halifax, Nova Scotia, April 3, 1850. I am sorry to have to inform you that the result of your efforts and of our high expectations of the action of our legislature has ended in a mere compliment to you. However just and however sincere, the one thing needful would, I am sure, have been much more satisfactory to you. I fear that even the thunders of Demosthenes would scarcely disturb our apathy and insensibility respecting such subjects. End quote. Quote, Halifax, Nova Scotia, August 10th, 1850. As to the final accomplishment of our object, although I must approve of the purpose never to abandon a post undertaken in a good cause. I am almost like the Quaker, who said to his traveling companion, when in circumstances of danger, I must go by thy faith, for mine is gone. If there be a final triumph, I shall, if I live, rejoice to join in the song of victory, and to aid in weaving the chaplet around your brows. Ridiculous as this may sound now, who can tell what may yet be done? Impossible seems to be now an obsolete term. We live in an age of wonders. End quote. Quote, Halifax, Nova Scotia, July 5th, 1853. I thank you, my noble-minded and generous friend, for your kind, encouraging letter. Your vigorous, unwavering faith and your firm, unflinching resolution shame away doubt and inspire confidence. With you by my side, like Minerva, in the shape of Mentor, by the side of Telemachus, even I would become courageous." we shall conquer yet. Do you not inwardly chuckle as I say we? 
Is it something like the bellows blowers and the organists didn't we do well? Never mind, if the well only comes, no matter about the we. End quote. Quote, Halifax, Nova Scotia, August 4th, 1853. I called on the admiral, or rather at the admiralty house, to leave my card for the Earl of Ellsmore, as in duty bound. The old admiral met me at the door very cordially, shook hands, and then said, Where is Miss Dix? I replied, She left for home yesterday. She has been to Sable Island and back. He exclaimed in true sailor style, She's a gallant woman. End quote. Quote, Halifax, Nova Scotia, 1853. The session of our legislature closed yesterday, and I hasten to inform you that something has been done for the object of our long and earnest effort. Fifteen thousand pounds, equal to sixty thousand dollars, has been appropriated, with the condition that five thousand pounds more be subscribed. They have made me, officially, the acting and chief commissioner. How strangely and unexpectedly are things brought about. I am bound in gratitude to be thankful that Providence has blessed my humble efforts in behalf of our afflicted fellow beings. But I feel myself so totally inadequate as to knowledge of the right and best way of proceeding that I shrink from it and wish it were in abler hands. You see how much I need your aid. May I expect to have it? I cannot but think how much stronger your faith was than mine. You always said it would be done. I confess that I had given up hope during my life. End quote. A few instances like these will suffice in the attempt to record the series of moral successes achieved by Miss Dix during these nine memorable years. Tedious to the reader would it be to enlarge on them separately. Suffice it to say that each succeeding year witnessed the original foundation of one or more state asylums, and was marked by public votes of thanks from fresh legislatures and by letters of congratulation of the tenor of that in which Dr. R. S. Stewart of Baltimore wrote her after the passage of her bill in Maryland. Quote, Most cordially do I congratulate you on your success, because I am well convinced that no other means than yours could have produced this result. I am glad you have one more leaf added to the chaplet that so honorably adorns your brow. End quote. Of a like tenor, letters by the score from governors, members of legislatures, and associations of physicians were now continually pouring in upon her from all quarters of the Union. We can do nothing without you, was the universal cry. Her vitalized personality withdrawn, every movement languished, while, as soon as she was again upon the spot, the stragglers hurried back, 
the ranks closed up, the leaders headed the columns, and victory ensued. Confidently may it be asserted that on no other page of the annals of purely merciful reform can be read such a series of moral triumphs over apathy, ignorance, and cruel neglect as were in that space of time won by Miss Dix. Besides the memorable list of previous successes, there might now have been emblazoned on her battle flag of humanity the names of Lexington, Kentucky, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Indianapolis, Indiana, Jacksonville, Illinois, Fulton, Missouri, Nashville, Tennessee, Jackson, Louisiana, Raleigh, North Carolina, Jackson, Mississippi, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, District of Columbia, Halifax, Nova Scotia. It is easy to repeat these names, harder to make each one of them summon before the mind's eye the buildings, farms, pleasure grounds, skilled and humane supervision of a great institution, taking into its protecting arms of mercy such numbers of the most wretched and abandoned of earth's creatures. Still, even in the case of the most sluggish imagination, it cannot be difficult to rise in partial sympathy, at least, with the enthusiasm with which, on the occasion of still another success in South Carolina, that profound and noble-minded scholar, Dr. Francis Lieber, wrote to Miss Dix from Columbia, South Carolina, quote, Te deum laudamus. How do you feel? Like a general after victory? Oh, no, much better. Like people feel after a shipwreck? You are saving thousands, and not by one act, but by planting institutions and institutions of love. And when man does that, he comes nearest to his God of love and mercy. Duis tibi lux, F.L. Indeed, at this period, Miss Dix herself looked with a not unnatural wonder, mingled with devout humility, on the unexampled success of her career. She rarely spoke of her own achievements, but in a letter of June 1850 to her friend, Mrs. Rathbone of Liverpool, England, there occur a few sentences which lift the veil of her habitual reserve and admit one within the sanctuary of her inmost feeling. Quote, Shall I not say to you, dear friend, that my uniform success and influence are evidence to my mind that I am called by providence to the vocation to which life, talents, and fortune have been surrendered these many years? I cannot say, Behold now this great Babylon which I have builded, but, lo, O Lord, the work which thou gavest thy servant, she does it, and God in his benignity blesses and advances the cause by the instrument he has fitted for the labor. End quote. After the record of such a series of achievements, 
and before farther proceeding with the story of the still more remarkable triumphs which awaited the subject of this biography in the future, it seems natural to pause here a moment to try in some way to grasp the secret of her power. Notwithstanding all her virile forces of intellect and will, the ideas entertained by Miss Dix on the subject of woman's work or woman's sphere of influence in the world were at this period, and indeed remained to the end of her life, of a character that would in these days be regarded by many superior women as decidedly conservative and of the old school. And yet in them lay the hiding place of the peculiar power she exerted in the southern and southwestern states, then ruled by an ideal of womanhood which had in it many elements handed down from the days of chivalry. Distinctly and emphatically, Miss Dix believed in woman's keeping herself aloof and apart from anything savoring of ordinary political action as equally from every desire of material reward, whether in the way of money, place, or personal distinction. She must be the incarnation of a purely disinterested idea appealing to universal humanity, irrespective of party or sect. At once a voice of tender supplication for the outcasts of the earth and their impassioned champion, capable of flaming with sacred fire. From large numbers of the politicians with whom she was necessarily brought into close contact, carefully as she hid the feeling from them, she yet shrank with a distinct moral repulsion. They are, she declared, the meanest and lowest party demagogues, shocking to say, the basest characters. By nature, she herself was, as one of her truest and most admiring friends said of her, aristocratic in every fiber. That is, in the original and more literal signification of the word as emphasizing faith in the divine hierarchy of intellect, heart, and conscience. Instinctively she craved and enjoyed intercourse with the finer and higher types of humanity, and drew back in sensitive aversion from every shape of ugliness, vulgarity, and self-seeking. Anthophila, the flower-lover, was the Greek name with which, in those days, the eminent publicist Dr. Francis Lieber usually addressed her, and the name held true not merely of her love of flowers, but of everything characterized by social grace and refinement, by intellectual distinction, or by beauty of manners, spirit, and character. This side of her nature she had literally to crucify in a great part of her work. A Christ-like sense of compassion for human misery and of fiery indignation at the infliction of pain an intense intellectual revolt from the brute, irrational chaos of society which, under the light that had now broken, permitted such evils longer to exist, these, together with a daily yearning supplication, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, 
were the only powers that nerved her to tolerate perpetual contact with degraded forms of misery and with a class of public characters, many of whom were offensive to her through and through. The natural result of this position, early adopted and inflexibly adhered to by mystics, was that, especially among the ardent and impulsive peoples of the southern and southwestern states, she gradually came to be regarded as a being apart from ordinary humanity. Very striking is it to turn over old files of Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and other southern newspapers, and read the glowing language in which they speak of the arrival within their borders of that gracious lady, that crown of human nature, that chosen daughter of the republic, that angel of mercy. On issues aside from her own self-consuming passion, she was careful to antagonize no one. Even on the slavery question, then becoming ever more hotly agitated and awakening the fiercest hatred against all who belonged to the North, she persistently held her peace. What her view and action on the subject would have been had she been left to the natural impulses of her own merciful heart may be readily enough inferred. But she entered the South under bonds to keep the peace, bonds not personal and selfish, but disinterested and sympathetic. One word from her lips in the way of the mildest reproval even, and every state south of the Susquehanna would have been sealed to her. Her word would have affected nothing, but it would have left thousands of forlorn wretches to languish without a champion in cells and chains, in filth and misery. No, she felt she had her own God-appointed work, so vast and far-reaching in its consequences that her feeble hands could but grasp its outermost skirts. In a very literal sense, poor Simmons' God had become passionately identified with her own God, and the prayers of agony shrieked from his dreary abode, now filled her ears till she could hear no other cry. A letter of Dr. Francis Lieber, written as far back as November 5th, 1846, from Columbia, South Carolina, gives expression to his own sense of the unique, moral, and imaginative position occupied by Miss Dix in the work to which she had consecrated her life. Quote, you as a woman, he said, have a great advantage over us, for with the firmness, courage, and strength of a male mind, you unite the advantage of a woman. Savarin, at the head of the French police, told Napoleon, with reference to Madame de Keiler, that he could not master the woman. This was in a bad cause, but the same holds good in a good. You do not excite the same opposition, no one can suspect you of ambitious party views, and you can dare more because people do not dare to refuse you many a thing they would not feel ashamed of refusing to any one of our sex. Therefore, take care of yourself. End quote. 
How strong indeed was the impression at this period exerted by her personality on a mind of the range of Dr. Lieber's is manifest in the language, one of his own letters to George S. Hillard of Boston. Quote, Miss Dix has been with us again and leaves us tomorrow. She is greatly exhausted, and I always fear to hear that she has succumbed somewhere in a lonely place. What a heroine she is. May God protect her. Over the whole breadth and length of the land are her footsteps, and where she steps, flowers of the richest odor of humanity are sprouting and blooming as on an angel's path. I have the highest veneration for her heart and will and head. End, quote. End of chapter 13